Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is episode 12 of our continued trip around Major League Baseball's history through firsthand conversations I've had with some of the best to ever play the game, and those like today's guests whose careers and stories warrant more than just the mentioning of their names. Thanks for finding Hardball. And if you've listened to a few previous episodes or this is your first, I appreciate if you could spread the word about our little piece of the podcast world. We are truly unique in that there is nothing else like this out there. And by subscribing and asking others to do the same, by rating and reviewing if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we can continue to bring these conversations to you. If you know anything about Johnny Roseboro beyond the Juan Marichal incident, you probably didn't hear it from John himself. With the nickname Gabby as a poke at his want to just go about his business and let his game, the game, do all of his talking. You will not find many moments like this out there. John Roseboro talking about himself and more the game he loved. There's just nothing out there, and I'm very happy that we had a chance to sit down less than a year before his passing in 2002, and I take away the fact that the man who was not known for opening up seemed to enjoy our time together as much as he did. This is a perfect example of what I had hoped Hardball would be when it started as a segment on Atlanta Radio almost 20 years ago, finding Hall of Famers and having them tell their stories for sure, but more importantly, finding men like Johnny Roseboro to honor their journey to the majors and their time around some of the biggest names in games and the role they played in them a two-time Gold Glove winner and robbed of a couple of more, a six-time All-Star, a three-time world champion, and the man who threw the fingers down for two of Sandy Koufax's no-hitters. He was the heir apparent to Roy Campanella, but John did make his debut in 1957 as a backup first baseman who played in his first four major league games at the position because of an injury to Gil Hodges. The last year the Dodgers played in Brooklyn, of course, in 57. He was thrust into the full-time catching job when the three-time MVP Campanella's car accident occurred in January of 1958. It was the start of a 10-season run as the primary catcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, an incredible time in the franchise's history. How important was John to a stretch that included four appearances in the Fall Classic? This important. And I quote, Roseboro was the conscience of our club. He was a steadying influence. He was the bright guy who knew the game and how to handle pitchers. He was fair to everyone. He was a quiet leader. If he had something to say, you listened. And like Maury Wills, he would do anything to win. Look, the man hit a first-game three-run home run off of Whitey Ford in the 1963 World Series. Sandy Koufax's 15 strikeouts got all of the headlines, but Johnny's home run, the first Whitey gave up to a lefty that entire season, was the biggest single blow in the Dodgers' four-game sweep of the Yankees. We will talk about it all, including his at-one-time complicated relationship with Monroe Rochelle that turned into a true friendship, and Johnny's part in playing a major role in the overdue election of Marichal into baseball's Hall of Fame. I hope you enjoy the stories, the place John was in his life, 
a man who was reflective, upbeat while facing health issues, and perhaps a man who knew that parts of his life did not go as planned, but was ready to talk some ball with what he realized was a very interested voice on the other side of the phone. Thanks again to the best in the business when it comes to putting these episodes together, Keith Ippolito, who loves finding the clips and music that bookend these conversations every bit as much as I do. Here you go, Johnny Jr. Roseboro. And let's take a look at those fellows whose names are printed boldly on the Dodger lineup card. Shortstop Maury Wills opening it up. Jim Gilliam at third base. There are no surprises today for either team. Willie Davis in center field hitting third. Lou Johnson in the cleanup spot as he always is against left-handers. Ron Fairley hitting fifth. Wes Parker at first base. Dick Krasuski playing for the injured Jim Lefevre, who tried to make it today but couldn't do it. The catcher, Johnny Roseboro, and the pitcher, Sandy Koufax. Now the step by four, the pitch, one ball, five ball, hit deep, and maybe foul. Down the line, we're watching. I took uh, about eight or ten swings today. I got a new contraction on my bat to try to help me, or try to keep me from throwing it so far. Batting practice will get you in a, in a bad rut out here because, you know, you're supposed to hit that ball wherever you want and just about as far as you want. Speaking of a San Francisco Giant, well, let's talk to a gentleman right now who, uh, who certainly knew what a rivalry was. We talk all the time about our rivalries, the same in sports. Well, the Giants and the Dodgers certainly have one of the most storied rivalries in sports history, and this gentleman was in the middle of it for a little bit in New York and then certainly out in California. Tonight he joins us, Mr. Johnny Roseboro, this evening doing? on Hardball. Mr. Roseboro, how are you? I'm fine, Chris, and how are you doing? Very good, sir. I do appreciate your time this evening. Well, good. Well, fire away. Well, let's talk about a few things. Uh, let's talk first about your career. Yes, you do. You do spend that one season, the last season that the Dodgers were in Brooklyn. I think you're called up for about 35 or 40 or so games in that season, are you not? Yeah, I came up mid-season, I think in June, and uh, I sat in the bullpen with Rube Walker, and I learned a little bit about Major League Baseball and the boys this summer. And, of course, we all know the Dodgers moved that year, but what was your sense of the rivalry when it was based in New York, that giant Yankee-Brooklyn-Dodger rivalry? I didn't realize it then, Chris. It, it didn't bother me because, of course, I wasn't playing. I was a mm-hmm. rookie. And uh, I knew that the Dodgers had blown the pennant with Ralph Branca, but it, it hadn't set in as a rivalry. It, that didn't happen until we got on the West Coast. Now, where were you actually from, Mr. Roseboro? Where did you grow up? I'm in, from Ashland, Ohio, 60 miles below Cleveland. And would that mean you're an Indians fan growing up, or would you become a Cincinnati fan? How would it work in your household? In my household, it was the Cleveland Indians for everything, and the Cleveland Buckeyes in the Negro Leagues. Okay, and I was just going to ask you about that, because a lot of people don't realize sometimes the Newark team and some of the other teams, Kansas City, are the most talked about, but the Negro League teams were a little bit more spread out, and there were certainly a few more of them than people know of. Oh, I used to, my dad used to take us up to, uh, what is it, uh, I forget the name of the park now. But, uh, yeah, we used to watch the Cleveland Indians, and we'd watch the Cleveland Buckeyes and enjoyed it immensely. Do you have a recollection of some of the bigger names in the Negro Leagues coming through the Cleveland area? Well, they had a first baseman with a glove like Goose Tatum, a real big glove, a guy named Archie Ware. And they could throw the ball in the infield in the dirt, and he'd just pick them like like, like nothing. Satchel Page, Sam Jethro, uh, Jesus. Uh, Luke Easter, 
guys like that. Uh, Sam Jethro was the guy that could run. He ran like a track star, and he floated around the bases. They that was. Some, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. They had some talented young guys uh, in those days. Now, was baseball your favorite sport as a child? No, my favorite sport was football. I went to college on a football scholarship. I did not know that. Yeah, baseball was secondary, and they found out I could play a little baseball, and the Dodgers sent a scout down to Central State College after my freshman year in football. I was a linebacker, by the way. And uh, they offered me $1,500 uh, bonus, and they... Uh, they offered me, I think it was, geez, $150 a month to go play baseball. And what, do you remember the conversation you had with your parents when you said, this is what I'd like to do? <laughs> yeah, I said, if you, I promised my mom and dad that if they let me go play baseball, I'd go back to college, which I never did. <laughs> <laughs> well, things worked out on the baseball front. Things worked out well. I, uh, I could run like a son of a gun. I had a good arm. They signed me as a catcher, but... Because of my speed and my arm, they put me in, my, in the outfield my first year. And I did that, oh, for three or four years until I came out of the Army in 1956. And in 56, Campy was about ready to go out with Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm -hmm. So they told me to put on a catcher's mitt and get back behind the plate again. So that's... Not well, I've got to ask, you know, obviously the tools of ignorance is an expression that every baseball fan uh, oh. certainly knows. Did you enjoy catching because of the mental part of the game, and did you hate catching because of the physical part of the game? No, I love catching because of the mental part of the game and the fact that I was in charge of the defense out there on the field. Mm -hmm. uh, I could move the outfielders, the pitchers, and I knew what we were going to do, and the infielders and outfielders depended on us to move them in the right spot. So I enjoyed catching immensely because of the, uh, it's like a chess game, Chris. I got four or five things I can do, and that hitter can only think of one thing. So it was an advantage that we had, and we used it uh, quite a bit with the uh, pitching staff we had. Well, I'm going to ask you about some of the pitchers who you actually caught in a couple of seconds, but let me ask this. Two things. Were you a talker as a catcher? Were you the type of guy who was trying to get a hitter maybe not to think about the task at hand? I tried that with a guy named Johnny Logan uh, when I first came up. You know, come on, babe, come on, fastball inside, and then I'd throw him a curveball. Mm -hmm. And he called me one of these wise blank, blank rookies, you know. <laughs> So I had to stand up to him, and I stood up to him, and he turned around and walked away. But that was the last time I did that kind of stuff. That was kind of what we call Bush League stuff. And early on, you learned that's not the way it's supposed to be done in the major leagues? Oh, no, you don't do that yeah. in the major leagues. So not, not at all. Now, Mr. Rosebrother, the other thing I'm always curious is with catchers who've had an opportunity to be behind some of the best hitters, and when we're talking about the National League and the years that you were in it, we're talking about some great hitters. What would you do in terms of looking at feet where guys were standing up in the box, back in the box, away from the plate? I mean, would you help your pitcher because of the sight line and the ability that you had to see what guys were doing with feet and hands and the way they were actually positioning? Are you a ball player, Chris? Uh, well, no, I'm, a little bit. I, I just, I'm always curious because I know catchers, sometimes they say, well, it's about the pitch itself, but then other guys will tell you, well, it's about the location and it's about the idea of just getting that little fraction of an advantage that you might not have 
if you weren't aware of the things that were going on around you. Well, Chris, that's, you're the first that's ever, ever asked me questions like that. And I watch the bat. If uh, if we jam him one time, and he come and he has a K55, which is a big handle bat. Mm-hmm. If he comes up the next time with an S2, which is a small handle bat, I know he's worried about not getting uh, not getting jammed again. And I look at the feet. If you move your feet in that batter's box, you know, one, two, three inches, we know it. And if you're getting too close to the plate, we can jam you. If you're getting too far from the plate, we pitch away. So you watch a little of everything. The eye, I watch guys look down to third base and first base in a bunt situation. Mm-hmm. They always take a look before they do it, before they execute the bunt. So I watch the bat, the feet, the eyes. I watch everything those guys do when they come up to the plate. And think about this, again, maybe just top of mind. You know, you talk about watching a guy in a bunt situation. I've always thought that the pitch out, when used correctly, is one of the greatest tools in baseball. But nobody's really stealing a lot today. Back in the day, again, when you played, if it was lower scoring games and you needed that advancement of a runner, the idea of the pitch out probably meant a little bit more than it does today. It does. It did then. You have to anticipate what the other manager is going to do, and you have to know what the manager is susceptible to doing. Certain managers don't steal. Certain managers play that safety baseball. Other guys put the pressure on. And one of the best things about baseball now is you can win ball games with speed. You can make other people make mistakes, and mistakes turn into runs. We are talking to Johnny Roseboro, a man who spent... Most of his career as a catcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, did a little uh, time in Brooklyn and then a little stint in the American League, and we'll talk about that as well in a few seconds. But now I've got to ask about some of the guys who you actually caught. You you caught, I believe, two of Sandy Colfax's no-hitters, correct, sir? That's right, yes, yes. And I don't, rem- I don't remember how I felt or anything like that. You know, it's just Sandy used to go out and pitch ball games, Chris, and we always knew that we had a chance of winning with him. It could be a one-hitter, two-hitter, or a no-hitter. And that's the way he pitched every night. Well, because he really is a his, – his career is the story of two careers. When he's in Brooklyn early on, everybody knows the wildness. He can't find a plate. And they certainly knew he had what everybody called stuff. But something must have happened with him. Do you know consciously if there was something physical or something mental that turned him into the pitcher he was for that span when he was basically as good as baseball has ever seen? Chris, I don't know that for sure, but in the books that are written about Sandy and and the years that he was wild, one of our second-string catchers was a guy named, uh, Jesus, golly, his son, his brother pitched for us. can't remember his name now. Anyway, he he was supposed to have talked to Sandy and gave him a a kind of a a suggestion Mm-hmm. that made Sandy not quite try to throw the ball as hard as he threw it all the time. And that's when his control picked up. So he he backed off of throwing the ball 105 miles an hour and started throwing it 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and it found uh, at least a little bit closer to the plate, and we and, know what happened there. And he could pick up the outside. He could pick up outside, inside, up and down all day long. Now, do you remember, We've I've talked to pitchers who have thrown no-hitters, Dwight Gooden and a whole bunch of other people, and this infamous idea of, I didn't know I had a no-hitter to the 6th, 7th. Would a catcher be the first to know, or would he be the last to know that a no-hitter was going on around him? Uh, he would probably be the second to know. The pitcher would be first, of course. 
and then the catcher, you you realize you're you're getting into dangerous territory, and you worry about anybody making a mistake. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing when you got no hitters going. You don't want to be the one to screw up in in that kind of situation. Again, talking to Johnny Roseboro tonight on the Where Are They Now segment on Budweiser's Hardball, a man who caught a very nice, solid career and a career that also included some postseason success. How exciting is that? You grow up in you know, you mentioned playing football, but when you become a major leaguer, the idea is playing in a World Series. You get that first one under your belt, and you had a chance to do it a little bit more than once. Well, we did it four times, mm-hmm. and it's it's very exciting. It's very frustrating when you get to that point where you're playing in the World Series and you're not getting any hits. So, you know, that bothers you because you're supposed to be able to, to deal with the extra pressure. But to me, I, I always had a problem in the World Series, getting more than one hit. I'd get one hit, I'd hit a home run one night, and i figure, well, what the hell, I'll probably have three or four more hits tonight, and i go over three, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's a challenge out there, and if you're not a Willie Mays or a Hank Aaron, somebody who's one of these great hitters like Barry Bonds, you're just, if you're just an average hitter, there's a lot of pressure on you. Was it a strange feeling, and I know you were, I guess, about 23, 24 when you make it up to the major leagues and you were signed by the Dodgers, so I don't know if you played in the Montreal part of their farm system, but you do go to Vero Beach. To see some of the guys that you had heard about, Duke Snyder, Jackie Robinson, you mentioned Roy Campanella, who unfortunately the accident happens, he never plays for the L.A. Dodgers. Was that a strange feeling as a young man to be around that kind of group of people? Chris, it's like riding home for five, getting ten. When I worked out with the Dodgers and the boys this summer, the uniforms, the bat, even the bats that they had, the bats are different than the ones you use when you're a rookie or a kid out in the boonies somewhere. So it's it's like you're in seventh heaven. It's the greatest feeling in the world. And only a handful of people, when you think in relative terms of how many people play baseball as a kid, actually get a chance to feel that. Now, we got to ask you, Juan Marichal, Johnny Roseboro, I contended earlier in the show today when I mentioned you were coming on that it might be the most famous brawl in sports history. Uh, fact from fiction, were you throwing the ball back to the pitcher fairly close to Marichal's ear on purpose? As close as I could get without hitting him. It was How many times did you do it in that at bat? One time. Usually it only takes one time. When you, it's called a knockdown from behind the plate. Sometimes you have pitchers that don't like to throw at hitters, and Sandy throws so hard he wouldn't throw at anybody. So was he, he afraid? Knock- by the way, was Big he afraid part- of hitting somebody because he threw so hard? Was that why he didn't necessarily? Go- I know he didn't have to go inside because he had great success, but was he afraid of hurting somebody? He went inside. Now don't don't get that wrong. He okay. didn't go in there to strike him out, but he didn't go in there to knock him down. Okay. Yes, and he was scared of hitting somebody and even though it be fatal. So we had, we developed a, a knockdown from behind the plate in situations like that. And it was strictly, in our day, a knockdown situation. Marishaw knocked down a couple of our guys, so we had to retaliate. Had we had Drysdale on the mound, Marishaw wouldn't have thrown close to anybody because Drysdale's the kind of guy that's just the opposite of uh, Koufax. Did you have to signal for Don Drysdale when to push somebody back or when to drill somebody in the ribs, or was it just, did you? in other words, were you in sync with him? Did you know when he was going to do that? Yes, yes. We have a sign, uh, the flick the thumb, and that means knock him down. Throw it to the shoulder, 
knock him down, get him out of there. Mm-hmm. Had you had a history with Juan Marichal yourself, or was this just you as the catcher, the leader of that team that night, being the guy that had to take it upon himself? I took it upon myself that night. He knocked down Ron Fairley and Maury Wills, both of my friends, and uh, it didn't matter that they were friends. It didn't matter they were teammates. And you don't knock down somebody on our ball club without us trying to get two or three of yours. And now you throw one ball by his ear, and I'm assuming, because, again, I've seen the footage, whatever footage there is of it. Did he even make a comment to you, or was it strictly it's time to bring the bat up to your head? No, he said, you better not hit me with that ball. And I came out of my crouch going after him, and I saw the bat coming, and I got my parry up. I was, by the way, I was in karate and kung fu at the time, and I told the guys on the bench, if he said anything, I was going to hurt him. And uh, I got my parry up, and he hit me on the head, and I forgot all the kung fu and karate I ever learned. <laughs> How long had you actually been doing kung fu and karate? And obviously every, it left you pretty quickly. Every every winter I took karate lessons and kung fu lessons. Now, did you do that for physical well-being, or did you do that for moments like this? That's to protect my butt, to give me uh-huh. an advantage over somebody that didn't take karate or kung fu. Being a catcher behind the plate, you always have situations where there's going to be a confrontation. And if you're going to have a confrontation, Chris, you don't want to come in second. No, you don't. But unfortunately, when a Louisville slugger or a Rawlings is involved, <laughs> you probably have no other choice or option but to come in second. Now, a lot of people, I was explaining to somebody yesterday that we're not talking about helmets the way that we have helmets today. You were wearing a soft cap, correct? We were wearing a soft cap, yes. yes. How we much didn't... damage? How much damage? Yeah. I'm brain damaged today. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, no, I just can I tell you, Mr. Roseborough, can I tell you, everybody yeah. that I work with just all of a sudden shot their eyes up and said, oh, my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he just got me on the left side of the head, and, again, he hit me in the wrong spot. If he'd hit me on the bottoms of my feet or my toes, <laughs> he'd have probably hurt me. But he hit me in the head, and it just caused a lot of blood to, to gush. <laughs> Now, again, there is a famous photo. Now, what's your relationship with Juan Marichal today? We became pretty good friends. Uh, matter of fact, my wife and I had a PR company, still do, and uh, we went down to Santa Domingo for his first, he had a golf tournament down there, his first golf tournament. And we took our daughter, and he has two or three daughters, and we just had a grand time. We didn't hate one another. We just got in a fight. That's all. Now, nobody asked you to recreate this at the golf tournament, did they? No, no. But before we even landed, when we were in the airplane, before we landed in Santa Domingo, I mean, in, yeah, in Santa Domingo, they had the papers out saying that we were friends again and everything was cool. And the reason my wife and I did it, Chris, was we wanted Marischal to go into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. He's that kind of man. He's that kind of pitcher, and they kept him out of the fame, out of the hall, because of our altercation. And in baseball, you only have one fight a year, two fights a year, and then you forget about the stuff. And uh, they kept they kept it going. Well, they've kept it going for thirty some years, yeah. Now I, I'm kind of curious about that. I didn't realize that. You believe that incident directly traces back to. And you believe something had to be done to ensure that Juan Marichal ended up in the Hall of Fame? Because I wouldn't think writers would think that way. I'm a little surprised by that. Oh, no. They take, uh, they take I shouldn't say homage, but they, mm-hmm. they, they kind of punish people. Pete Rose is being punished now 
but it's coming out that Pete Rose might have deserved what he got. So, in but, other words, if, if Juan Marichal had punched you instead of hit you with the bat, then it's just a baseball fight. It's just an ordinary fight, right. 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 And we all get fined a, a couple games and a couple thousand dollars, and it's all over. Uh, our our little fight lasted, our altercation and the, and the effects of that lasted approximately of the baseball season. After that, Marischal wasn't was never the same as a pitcher. He he never came inside tight with hitters after that, which changed his pitching philosophy quite a bit. Did, did you have a conversation with him at any point that first year? In other words, did he no. ask to find out how you were physically that night? And no, did no. you talk this out that year? <laughs> no, that first year we'd have probably had fisticuffs. No, we didn't talk that first year. I didn't talk to him till years later. When he was with the Dodgers, he came out here playing for the Dodgers, and he was getting his butt kicked every night out there, and I couldn't understand how because he had such great stuff. I went to the ball game, and I learned very quickly that he wasn't throwing inside. He gets two strikes, no balls on a hitter, and he'd try to go low and away or uh, up and away instead of going up tight or up, you know, knock the guy down to open up the outside part of the plate. He had changed his pitch, pitching because of the altercation that we had, and that bothered me quite a bit. Well, I didn't know that either because I'm going to look at his numbers uh, this weekend to find out how they compared before to after because, like you said, if you didn't pitch inside, batters will take as much as you're willing to give them, especially in that day and age when they were expecting it. If it wasn't coming, life just became easier for everybody that was at the plate. That's right. You got to go, In those days, you got to come inside good and have the threat of being knocked on your can or you're not going to be a good pitcher and you have to have the control he had the control and he had four or five pitches that he could throw up there with control but he didn't have the the ability to knock people down the fans were all over his case everywhere he went as they were with me everywhere i went they didn't like me i went to santa domingo in 1991 and that's years after the affair and, boy, they hated me in Santa Domingo. What did you do? All you did was collect a couple of splinters. I collected a couple of splinters, but I caused the problem. And in Latin America, I'm not the nicest guy. Well, that's interesting because, again, not only just the years factor, but after you're the guy who gets hit with a baseball bat, people will still tell you, well, you really precipitated this whole thing. Uh, it's, it's a strange situation Yes, out it there. is. <laughs> and you expect it. And... Uh, I, w I decided after my first my year down in uh, Santa Domingo, the 91 year, we won the pennant down there, but they hated me. They did not like me at all. Now, Mr. Roseboro, can I finish up with just a couple of things? If I mention a couple of names to you, can you tell me the first thing that comes to mind? Yes. Don Drysdale. The meanest pitcher in baseball. That's the first thing. Uh, a fighter. And... Uh, Great control. Gil Hodges. The nicest man in baseball. Throw the ball in the dirt, and he's going to pick it out like he's picking cherries. Does he belong in the Hall of Fame? I think so, yes. If, uh, if Bill Mazeroski can be in the Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame. And that was one of the things that we brought up when Mr. Mazeroski did get in this year. If I mention Jackie Robinson, what do you say? The greatest man to ever play the game of baseball. And that's not just for me. That's from a South Carolinian named Rube Walker, 
and Rube used to sit in the bullpen and tell me what a great man Jackie Robinson was and how he played the game. He played the game played the game as hard as anybody ever played it, and he also would meet you under the stands if it, if it got kind of heavy. The Dodger tradition? The Dodger tradition is no more. It hasn't been for years. Once they're... Once their minor league system went to kaput, you can forget about the Dodger system. Does that hurt you personally? Yes, yes, because we we were raised in an atmosphere of friendship, comradeship, all that kind of stuff. The guys were all together, and now you don't have that in Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. People come and go all the time. Money is more important, which is important in life. Mm-hmm. But uh, you don't have the same kind of, of uh, team camaraderie that you had back then. Is it fair to ask somebody such as yourself, and with your bird's eye view behind the plate, who was the greatest player that you ever saw? Henry Aaron, probably. Henry Aaron is, is an everyday player. He did it quietly. Henry didn't. Uh, Henry, Henry had the same skills as Willie Mays, but he didn't basket catch, and he didn't do all that. His hat didn't fly off, but he could play, he could run like a son of a gun. He could hit the ball inside and outside, and he could hit with power. And uh, Henry's still a good friend of mine. Well, Mr. Roseboro, let me finish up with this. And I don't know how and why I'm going to do it, but I am. There was an episode that I was talking about earlier today of uh, TV show Mr. Red. You were actually in that episode. Yes. Do yes. you remember that whole experience? And when they came to you originally, did you just say, excuse me, what? No, uh, we. I was trying to be an actor back then. There were you really? There weren't many uh, blacks in acting. And the, when we Dodgers got out here, there it opened up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we got some parts. So the part uh, in Mr. Ed was just, it was just a part. And it turned out to be where the horse is coming around and going to slide <laughs> it home. And they put me on a ladder, put me up on the screen. And it turned out to be kind of funny. I, I just enjoyed it. Now, i got to ask, we were talking about it today. They didn't really slide a horse across home plate. I'm assuming there were some fake legs involved or something. No, it was a plaster Paris horse on a uh, on a pulley that they slid across the plate. And uh, then they put the live horse in after that. Now, is it funny that this many years later, because we asked about it, people still remember that episode, and they remember that you were the guy who had to attempt to tag Mr. Ed. I mean, think about this. You caught Sandy Koufax. You're playing a World Series. You wear a Dodger uniform for as many years as you did, and now you got to tag out Mr. Ed at home plate. That's right. It, and it turned out to be one of the top comedic series in television. Yes, it was. And Leo DeRocher, I'm sure, was all for this because yeah. he was another guy who loved the Hollywood thing. Oh, that was his bag. That yeah. Was, that was his bag. And he was a great man, too. He was a great manager. He would have made a great manager. I would love to have played for him if he was the manager. Mm. Well, Mr. Roseboro, what a great pleasure and an honor to speak to you tonight. As I said, a man whose roots go back, as you said, to Cleveland and not only Major League Baseball but the Negro Leagues, which I think is not talked about enough, and we try to do it from time to time on this show to ensure that a little bit of history is certainly put in its place and people who are too young just don't use that as an excuse to not know what was laid out before them. You know, it's easy to say, well, cable TV, ESPN, I get all my games. But if not for the likes of a lot of people who played before you and then your generation of players, we're not in the position we are as baseball fans today. You know your business, kid. 
Well, thank you, Mr. Roseborough. And again, honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Hopefully we'll do it again in the not-too-distant future. All right. Have a good one, man. Thanks, Johnny. Have a great night. Bye-bye. When they all said that the Dodgers was dead, that's when we came to life and charged ahead. Nasty words and their bats they would drop. Oops, there goes another batter. Oops, there goes another batter. Oops, there goes another batter. Two and two. Every time he went two out, Trillibrew on first. Dodgers leading two to nothing. He did it. Sandy Kopax gets his tenth strikeout. His second consecutive shutout of the Twins on Monday on a four-hitter, today on a three-hitter. Every pitcher, of course, likes to finish a game with a strikeout. This was, of course, not a game. This was the seventh game of the World Series. Then came the Yanks like a thunder of tanks when they thought we'd give up. We said no thanks. like a prop. Oops, there goes another Yankee girl. Oops, there goes another Yankee girl. Oops, there goes another Yankee girl. Oops, this is your big chance. This could mean your own television show. In color? In living color. <laughs> you know,